Give it up, baby. I've studied all your moves. Yeah, study this! <laughs> Good everyone and welcome to the second edition of the Forbidden Technique podcast. I'm Silas Martin, I'm joined by Christian Reynolds and today we're going to be recapping the card that we previewed last week, uh, main evented by Calvin Cater versus Giga Jukadze. In the main event, Calvin Cater won by unanimous decision. A lot of people counting him out in this fight and while he maybe didn't show that many new looks, he fought like a man who had something to prove and put an absolute beating on Giga Jukadze. Kuff, what surprised you about this fight? Mostly that Cater didn't sell out for offense in the way that he has been in his more recent run. He's he committed a lot more to just throwing stuff away and staying right in front of his opponent rather than taking too many steps back and giving ground. And I also expected Chikadze to be able to maintain kicking for a bit longer than he was able to, but he his kicks really faded as the fight went on, though he did have success when he landed them. Yeah, it seemed like a really important tactic for Cater is that he just committed to constant forward movement. And while he wasn't, he did he didn't necessarily still have the pressure tactics to keep Giga along the cage and really trap him there, like like just crush that space and make him feel really uncomfortable and and, and fuck him up in the corners. Um, the fact that he just wouldn't stop moving forward meant that Giga was constantly having to move backwards to try and get into the space he needed to kick and that he was constantly having to throw back in the pocket where we really saw the um, defensive liabilities in Giga Jakadze's boxing that we called out last week as Calvin Cater was able to get some big openings for counters in these exchanges. Something else we kind of uh, failed to call out could have been a factor is that Calvin Cater actually committed to wrestling somewhat more than almost any other performance in the UFC. I think a big pivotal part of this performance was him getting Giga Jukadze down off of him falling off of a kick in the first round and just holding him in top position, not getting a turn done, but it seemed like it really it really burned some time against someone who's you know known for relying on a very fast explosion early in a fight. Uh, cl- clearly just tied Giga out a little bit, having to have Cater on top of him for most of that first round. It seemed to affect how how much he was willing to throw kicks for the rest of the fight and maybe just just took some of the steam off of him by uh, by burning that time in the first round. Yeah, it was it was definitely important to establish a threat of grappling even if it wasn't specifically a takedown threat because Chikadze wasn't able to just kick as freely as he normally can because Cater's actually able to maintain position if he gets on top of you. And Chikadze's takedown defense was generally pretty good whenever Cater actually attempted it was just the the early going it really sealed the round for cater even though cater was kind of getting doing up on the feet before and then for the rest of the fight cater was so insistent on pressure that chikadze just didn't get any breathing room and anytime chikadze really could get breathing room it was just him sitting down on power for a few seconds and then not being able to throw a 50 punch combination like max holly might be able to to like disincentivize cater's pressure or forward movement more so than pressure and and then Cater would just go back to moving forward when Chikadze was done throwing because Chikadze's not very effective at like evading his opponent on the outside. He also wasn't able to push Cater back for for any more than like five or six seconds, which 
you really got to be able to keep Cater off of you in this type of matchup because Cater is going to fight a kicker uh, aggressively, at least. He understands he can't just lay, lay on the back foot the entire fight. He actually has to go forward. And in this one, he was so insistent on pressure or forward movement, at least. Though his cage cutting left a ton to be desired. It, it certainly did. And I don't know how much we really learned about Calvin Kaya. It was good to see that he's just the same guy because a lot of people had questions about that and quite rightly so coming off of that Max Holloway fight. Um, but it was nice to see that he was just still both there physically and mentally and, and was able to put this performance in. Yeah, a broken man definitely can't sustain walking forward for 25 minutes against someone that's as powerful as Chikadze. And Chikadze had some good tricks like just to land the body kick that he always does, but Cater definitely showed to be a much more adaptable fighter especially over five, because as the fight progressed, he started finding more openings for elbows when Shikadze was ducking and exposing his forehead. He found a lot more opportunities to just throw away jabs and then occasionally picks, pick off a shot whenever he gets Shikadze's head moving. He didn't commit the bodywork nearly enough for my liking, but he, he landed a few powerful body shots that at least made Shikadze take a few steps backwards. Yeah, it really seemed to be a problem for Giga in this fight that he relies so much on kind of sniping from range with singular shots. And he, he's just, he's still not particularly comfortable throwing in the pocket for extended exchanges. And he just doesn't really have the ring craft to, to back up that, that kind of long range kicking game against someone who's just going to commit to constantly crushing the distance. And Cater tried to maintain them being in the pocket for as long as he could. And Shikadze has terrible footwork in the pocket. He mostly just squares his stance or tries to get away. And when he squares his stance, he's very hittable, of course. He, he just ate jabs pretty much the entire fight. He jabbed back with Cater, but most of his ability to jab with Cater was just based on the speed advantage. And he had like, I think he had a bit longer arms, maybe. So yeah, it was a it was a good performance from Kato that I think definitely showed that he can have a good night against pretty much anyone in this division who isn't Max Holloway. So not entirely sure what that means for him moving forward in this division. And then likewise with Giga Jakadze, I'd, I'd imagine he's going to have to take some pretty serious time off. His face was absolutely shredded at the end of this fight, and it feels like he's probably going to need a little step back in the division. While it's a good run that he's had, there was definitely some context to it, and there's definitely some stuff he's been getting away with that he that he needs to go back and address if he really wants to make a serious run at a title shot. Is there a fight in particular that you could see for either of them as their upcoming fight? I think I want Cater versus Ortega. I think the momentum makes sense, and I th- I think for Giga he needs to fight someone like uh, maybe, maybe Arnold Allen. Allen. Yeah, okay, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, some someone who's not going to really push his ring craft, but someone who can kick with him from Southpaw. It's interesting. Someone who will still grapple him. And he's good at jabbing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in the co-main event, this ended up being Jake Collier versus Chase Sherman. And Jake Collier put on the performance of a lifetime. What did you think about this, Christian? I was very impressed mostly because it surprised the hell out of me. I was expecting Sherman to win largely on a size advantage, but in the fight, he didn't really have one. I'm not sure if it was Collier gaining weight and then cutting weight, or maybe just uh, a lot of people got the size dynamic wrong, because it wasn't just us that expected Collier to be a good bit smaller. But he seemed to have a weight advantage on Sherman, and his his boxing looked 
improved from normal. He still looks away from his opponent too much when throwing, but it, that's not that much of a problem against Chase Sherman because Chase Sherman's not the type of guy that's like, oh, I can see my opponent giving me so many openings. I'm just going to counter. It was more just, I'm going to throw punches. And if it lands, then I'm going to capitalize on the fact that I've landed a power punch on my opponent. And Coley was mostly tuning him up for the fight. And then the second Sherman started having any success on the feet, uh, they got to the ground somehow. I believe it was Sherman threw like a low kick or something and then got his leg grabbed. And then Collier once on top, it was basically game over because he's so large and got top mount. And then Sherman turned around and got submitted. Yeah, and top mount is pretty much a death sentence at heavyweight unless you're on top of Derek Lewis. Okay, so next we had Brandon Royville pick up a split decision win over Hegerio Bontarine. Now, we said single shot counters and uh, back takes and positional grappling would be the key to victory for Hegerio Bontarine. We didn't think it would be enough. It kind of almost was. I thought Royville taking the decision in this fight was perfectly fine. I thought he took the first and third round. Um, Bontarine made a good account of himself. I thought he took the counter-punching opportunities that uh, Royville was giving him, which was less than normal. <laughs> uh, he definitely seemed slightly more cautious about like actually fainting into range rather than just like sprinting at his opponent with some incredibly wacky volume. And um, Hegerio Bontarine also did a good job of using reactive takedowns to nullify the pressure against Brandon Royville. And while he wasn't getting a ton done on top, you know, he, he he was burning time and and negating pressure. So, uh, Christian, what surprised you about this fight? Because I feel like we may have slightly underestimated Tajerio Bontarine and or overestimated Brandon Royval. I think we did both. And I also, I was impressed that Royval seemed to appreciate Bontarine as a kind of tricky matchup more so than we did. Of course, you know, he knows his style better than us, but... I just didn't expect Bontarine to have as much success countering, but Royval's defense is like objectively bad. And he got hit by single shot counters, which is all Bontarine really needed to land to be able to actually put him off of his game a lot of the fight. And on the ground, it was a lot of neutral exchanges or Bontarine getting a dominant position. And then later on, Royval kind of adapted to the grappling and started having good success in those, in like going for arm bars in the third round, I believe. It, it was a lot of very measured like volume from Royval, but it, it was not his typical performance. I feel like he fought tentatively to a degree because he just recognized that Bontarine had a good deal for him offensively that he would need to worry about. So being a madman and a guy that is super willing to just sell out on spinning elbows, kind of not good if a guy might just hit you in the back of the head once when you go for that. So he wanted to be a bit less counterable, but was still getting countered a ton. So it leads me to believe that the way he fought was necessary to be able to win. I think it's difficult to tell whether that was a specific adaptation for the matchup or if that's just him trying to have some kind of stylistic development. And it sounded like he was saying some things before the fight that he may just be concerned with the tremendous amounts of shit that he is eating in every fight he has, which is a good thing to see. Uh, it's I, I don't think it's the kind of trying to be more technical that's necessarily going to hamper his style. Because he, he's still he's still just a madman who wants to walk people down and fuck them up at heart. And he he's, seems like he's trying to find some slightly more responsible ways of doing that. And, and most of Royville's offense in his other fights that is like super dynamic, it's mostly his opponent coming towards him. And Bontarine isn't 
he's he's not going to come at you like that. So it's, it's just kind of annoying for Royville, I think. A guy that's very willing to just stand behind the black line, try and pick off counters, and then can get Royville's back all the time. Although Royville did do well to to like keep himself safe in the grappling positions. So before that, we had Caitlin Chukagan picking up her 10th decision win in the UFC. The first fighter in UFC history to make it to 10 wins without a finish. And we said there wasn't much reason to expect the fight to be any different than the first fight. And then kind of wasn't. Caitlin Chukagan maybe just won a little bit easier because, to her credit, she has made some improvements in that time that I think I might have underplayed. She is sitting down on her shots more. And she is a lot more willing to actually get into range to throw now. And she will uh, actively pursue takedowns and top control just to seal rounds. I thought it was a pretty good performance by Chukagian. I think a lot of Chukagian's success was just having fought Maya before and being comfortable fighting Maya. Because she wasn't really at all worried about Maya's power, which she really didn't need to be. Maya landed okay shots throughout the fight in spots, but mostly it was just Chukagian jabbing her up and just doing straight punches where she was switching stances over and over. And she did pretty good with kicks to the body, but didn't really commit to them enough. It, it felt like Chukagian was just, that's the best her, her performances can look, which wasn't bad. I thought it was a pretty good fight. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now we come to our fucking boy, Vyacheslav Borshev, taking out Dakota Bush with it absolutely sickening left hook to the body in the first round. If you listen to last week's episode, we were really high on Borshev, uh, so much so that we didn't even like look up who Dakota Bush was. We were just like, yeah, this guy's the fucking truth, seriously. Apparently, somebody from the Discord put a bet down on Borshev based on us being so high on him, and like, I really do not recommend that anyone does that. Uh, but it's cool, because we were right. He... He got taken down, but seemed to have a very keen awareness of the positions that Dakota Bush was trying to establish. Shut them all down at the first layer and was able to get up and land an absolutely disgusting kill shot. It it did impress me that Borshev seems to mostly just be a left hook guy. I thought he was more versatile, versatile, but he really doesn't need to be in a lot of matchups, at least at, at this stage of his career. We've seen more depth in his striking game from his fights before the UFC and before Contender Series. But his fight in the UFC and Contender Series, it was mostly just him kind of committing to the left hook because he saw the left hook opportunity there a lot. And then it was there quite a lot. His defense is, of course, kind of porous, but it's it's fine for what it is. I think his ceiling is a very good action fighter, like maybe getting into the top 10 just on like action fights which is really what Lightweight needs, I think, right now. Yeah, I mean, I do not have much of a read on what this guy's ceiling is, but he is going to be tremendous fun for as long as he's around, and, and I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. And the left hook to the body was gorgeous. He ate a counter as he landed it, but he ate a counter on the chin and won the exchange while trading a left hook with his opponent. Or I think his opponent threw a right hook, and Borshev threw a left hook to the body, and it was, like, perfect. His opponent got completely crumbled one of the best left hooks to the body you'll see in mma and it shows that his left hook isn't just to the head he's got a good check hook and he's also able to track you down and destroy your body so very very promising things to see from someone's debut in the ufc and dakota bush is not bad he's a very confident fighter 
Okay, and as for the rest of the card, uh, Bill Algio picked up a decision over Yo Anderson Brito. Jamie Pickett and Joseph Holmes had an incredibly sloppy middleweight fight. Uh, Colt McGee versus Rahamaj? My opinion on this fight is that it was smart by McGee. He he definitely fought like a veteran, and Brahamaj looked not ready to be fighting someone with as much experience as McGee. Uh, Brahamaj got dropped in the first round, and then for the rest of the fight, he was just on the back foot, kind of getting worked by McGee. McGee didn't commit to the striking. He, he mostly just was willing to clinch him against the cage for periods of time to wear him out. But it, it was smart and it worked. And by the end of the fight, Brian had nothing left and it seemed like me, McGee could continue that pace for two more rounds easy. Despite being old, he really just didn't take much. It, it didn't take that much for Court to be able to handle Brian Mach, which it's, it's always fun to see a guy that's been around as long as Court actually still winning fights against prospects. Yep. And if you're a prospect and your path to victory is a submission, it's not going to work on Cole McGee. Yeah. Or, or KO. You just, you got to be very dynamic to be able to finish Court McGee if you're not able to just shut down his grappling and, and his neutralizing game. Because he'll neutralize you if you aren't very good. Brian Kelleher had a late notice replacement fight against Kevin Kroom, uh, upper weight class at 145. Brian Kelleher. On a, I thought a pretty smart, savvy veteran performance to navigate a pretty significant size advantage in the last minute change of opponent. I thought it was cool how Kelleher didn't worry too much about pressuring or moving backwards. He just kind of took the fight wherever it felt like it was going. He he really wanted to be able to navigate the fact that Kroon was like six inches taller than him and also a lightweight or a former lightweight versus Kelleher who could pretty... I'm not necessarily saying easily, but he could probably still be making bantamweight no problem. And he he really just fought intelligently against Kroom. Kroom got hurt early in the first round and then just started putting on more volume and being more aggressive, which was really what he needed to be doing. But Kelleher just had more experience despite only being a year older. He had a lot more experience against high-level competitions, so he just kind of handled Kroom anytime Kroom got too aggressive. There was a, a cheeky elbow Kroom landed in the second round, but then Kelher just got him down. And anytime he started getting in real trouble, he just took Kroom down, which is all you need to do in this type of matchup because Kroom isn't a guy that's going to submit you if you're as competent as Brian Kelher. Kelher is very good at jiu-jitsu generally, and he, he did a lot of work with power shots. He got out-volumed on numbers, I believe, like two to one, but he very clearly was winning the, the striking even Despite that, did good work to the body of the guy a lot taller than him, which you always like to see. And then the third round, he just he just took him down and made sure he got the round. It was very a very smart thirty twenty seven by him. But th- but then he was still looking for submissions in transitions whenever they would appear while he was just working cream from top in the third round. Definitely, he, he didn't take many risks, but he also was not being complacent at all. He was trying to get to finish the entirety of the fight, just not rushing it at all. He, he was just waiting on it to come to him. If it came to him, it came. If it didn't, he was, he was perfectly willing to win a decision. Which is what you want to see from a guy that's like 35 and has been fighting for a very long time. And not necessarily something you would have said about a younger Brian Kelleher. And so opening the card, um, we had another last-minute replacement fight, which ended up being TJ Brown versus Charles Rosa, 
which got switched almost immediately after we went back and added some discussion about TJ Brown versus Gabriel Benitez last week because we had to make up some time for losing Michelle Pajera versus Muslim Salikov. And um, I, I told you this fight had, had been put together and your immediate reaction was, Charles Rosa is not going to get arm triangled. It was the only read either of us had about this fight. And, uh, and what did you think about how that played out? It, the prophe- prophecy came to fruition. Charles Rosa will not be arm triangled. I understand that it was short notice, but Brown should have looked up a single fight from Charles Rosa and realized, oh, this guy's really hard to finish submissions against. He's just, Im- he, you just can't choke him. He's just, he's just, he's just too resilient. He's just going to answer the phone and you can't choke him. I've joked for a long time that Charles Rosa's entire base for MMA is EBI overtime rules because it, it's not even that he has good early stage submission defense where he's good at like shutting down the submission before it's, before it's really locked in and it's really a threat. He will get all the way in an arm triangle and then he'll just answer the phone and be like, yep. Yeah. This is for you. It's your, it's your jiu-jitsu instructor. Wants his black belt back. Can't finish this arm triangle. Um, this has happened in several of Charles Rose's fights. And TJ Brown, despite all of this, w- w- would not stop going for the for the arm triangle. And I know we're talking about it a lot, but it, it, re- it, it really was absolutely stunning. It's like arm triangle, char- arm triangling Charles Rose is like the new clinching with Neil Magny. It, 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 it is mind-boggling. I believe it's Charles Rosa's, uh, like, three of his last four fights, his opponent got fully locked in, like, three submissions, and it did, none of them were even close. Rosa was just fine the entire time. He's like, nah, I'll just get out. Which is a very hilarious skill set, because he's equally as bad at submitting people as he is great at not being submitted, even when he's in deep submissions. Because he doesn't know how to finish chokes, so most of this fight he was just them kind of trading, trying to go for submissions, but Rosa's not even getting close, and then Brown getting it fully locked in and then it doing nothing. And I believe they gave Brown the decision, but it's just, like, it was a moral victory for Rosa. It was short notice, and he didn't get submitted. So, (laughs) pretty bad look for Brown, and as good of a look as you can get from Charles Rosa, probably. Okay, well, that's the whole card. was slightly weird event to kick off the year with, due to all the stupid amount of cancellations got got a a reasonably meaningful pay-per-view next week uh, UFC 270 main evented by Francis Ngannou versus Cyril Ghosn for the heavyweight championship and the trilogy match between Davison Figueredo and Brandon Moreno for the flyweight strap should be a a decent card even though like nine fights are going to be taken from it before we get to it Mm -hmm. so join us for that next week if you enjoyed this content and you enjoy the other content that the fight site puts out, consider supporting them on Patreon. Uh, the Patreon is full of a crazy amount of very high quality analytical content. And we have a discord server full of interesting, cool people who are fun to watch fights with and know lots of stuff about fighting. So come hang out, support the fight site on Patreon. Peace. Peace.